Father, help us to hear your word in this familiar story and understand and believe who you are in the shocking, loving, reassuring images that Jesus chose to use to help us understand how much you love us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning. Everybody okay? Welcome back. I'm going to ask you to open your Bible in one of the most familiar stories, perhaps the best known of all the stories, all the parables specifically that Jesus taught. I'm in Luke 15. And as soon as you see what it's about, if you've been in church for a while, if you've grown up in church, there'll be a temptation here for you to say, I've heard this story before. I will now scroll through Instagram for the duration of however long he intends to take because I know this story and hopefully it won't be terribly long and we can go to lunch at a decent hour and at least beat the Presbyterians uh, to the buffet. (laughs) I'm going to ask you not to do that, but to try to listen to the story as if for the first time. Because once you understand its meaning, it's one of the most reassuring, comforting, and also challenging stories that Jesus ever told. And the reason He told it has been building in Luke's gospel for several chapters now. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus determined to go to Jerusalem. And the rest of Luke's gospel is Jesus' progress toward Jerusalem, knowing that there He's going to be subjected to false accusations, and the pressure that you're going to hear in this story is going to rise to a crescendo, and the machinery that he's facing down with these stories is going to be organized and bold enough to kill him. And after a complete mockery of a trial, Jesus is going to be falsely accused. He's going to be lied about. He's not going to say a word in his own defense. He's willingly going to die on a cross, and then, Luke tells us at the end, rise from the dead to prove that everything He said was true, that He alone can save. But for now, we're in Luke chapter 15, and Jesus is dealing with some self-righteous people. Self-righteous people are the most common kind of people. You ever discovered yourself being self-righteous? I heard no over here to my left, and I'm afraid to look. (laughs) The truth is, we're all self-righteous. Everybody thinks they're right. And the great question of how can I be right with God and people, everybody's doing their best. And that's what they tell themselves, and that's what they tell others. And we, we kind of hide behind things that are true but meant to be dismissive when we know we're not right and we're not righteous. We say little things like this, nobody's perfect. And that, then, you know, we're all just a bunch of nitwits and everybody will be okay. Just take me as I am, right? You could listen to start listening to popular radio and popular music that way. You'd be surprised, even in love songs, how often the invitation is, take me just as I am. And if you're not willing to, well, there's the door. There's somebody else waiting, I'm sure, to take me as I am. Self-righteousness is really one of the most defining things about human beings. 
And the self-righteous establishment is angry with Jesus. It's never been hard to rile up self-righteous people, and that's exactly what's happening in Luke chapter 15. If you look with me in verse 1, you'll, re- you'll see the reason. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. That's the problem. And there's a few words there that escape our immediate attention because we weren't living at this time. Jesus says that the tax collectors and the sinners were getting close to Jesus, and they were listening to Him. Tax collector doesn't sound like a bad job in these days. It was a terrible and shameful job in Jesus' time because the Roman Empire had conquered Israel and much of the known world at that time. And the way they financed the occupation in the empire was they basically created what you could think of as tax farmers. You could buy, if you had enough money and not enough shame, you could buy a franchise to collect taxes for the occupiers. And here was the understanding. Because you're going to disgrace yourself socially and basically make yourself a traitor to your family and to your country, charge whatever you like, give us what we require, and you can get rich on the rest. Often Gentiles took this job, but sometimes Jews did as well, and many more Jews served as debt collectors. They were the ones that bothered other people to pay up under penalty of Roman law if they didn't. And these people who have already made a choice that they'd rather be rich than accepted. And then it says the sinners were drawing near to hear Him. And that's just a catch-all term. These are people who are so bad, so openly wicked, they've actually accepted who they are. They're notoriously sinful. They're scandalous in their terrible behavior, and they are drawing near to listen, and there's another group very different from the first. The Pharisees and the scribes, these are the experts in the law of God. They opened up the Hebrew Scriptures and the law of Moses, and they were the custodians and the explainers of what they believed God wanted, what God meant when He gave His Word. They were self-righteous by definition, and listen to their complaining. It says, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners. They're just lumping the whole worthless pack of people together. He receives the worst kind of people, and then he makes it worse. He does what? He eats with them. Then and now, when you share a meal with someone, what you're communicating to them is acceptance. Anybody ever been fired? You ever been laid off? A lot of fun, isn't it? They never offer you lunch when they fire you. (laughs) They might give you water and Kleenex, but that's as far as it goes. When people are, are breaking off relationships in family, even in a company, there's never a meal involved. Everybody everybody knows in this culture and in And in that culture, that when we sit down at a personal table, what this means is, I like you. I want to grow closer to you. And Jesus, who taught us to love other people, including to love our enemies, is actually doing it himself, and he's acting like he likes these people, and it's making the self-righteous crazy. So it says in verse 3, don't miss it, so he told them this parable. 
and then three parables, one after the other, all making the same point, but with increasing intensity. What man of you, Jesus says, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, probably because the sheep is too injured or too exhausted to walk home. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And that strikes you as odd a little bit if you think about it, doesn't it? Do you guys lose things as well? I lose things all the time. I lost two things just this morning. It's a miracle that I'm standing up here with the headset in where it should be in my Bible in my hand. It's just a continual series of losing things in my life. I make up for it by being a very determined searcher. And usually I enlist the children and I enlist my wife and sometimes I blame them for what I've lost. I put it right here, what have you people done and that sort of thing. And usually I'll just report back that I found it, but have you ever invited the whole cul-de-sac down to your house because you lost something and then you found it? Isn't that a little strange? Well, here's what's happening. They live in clans. They live in ancestral villages in this time, and this large extended family unit has shared wealth. This shepherd has had one sheep wander away. He's going to be 1% poorer, but it's not just him. That poverty and this hard scrabble, we're all struggling to eat, all of that is also going to be felt in the community. So he secures the 99, maybe with another shepherd or by securing them in a cave, and he looks over the wilderness looking for this ignorant animal that has wandered away, and that's what sheep do. They have to be watched very carefully or they wander away, but when he finds it, he calls the whole community together and says, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Here's Jesus' point. Jesus never tells a story just to entertain. He always has a life-giving point in it. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Do you know anybody who doesn't need to be sorry for something? Could you find 99 people who are in absolutely no need of repentance before God? Does that person exist? The person doesn't exist. We're all guilty before God. Our conscience tells us so. Who are the 99 who need no repentance? Well, they're back in verse 1. They're the tax, they are, in verse 2 rather, they are the Pharisees and the scribes who think they need no repentance. He tells another story. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp? And sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. Some of you went to Israel with us on one of our trips. You may remember the synagogue in Capernaum and the stones that made its foundation. It's almost, it's some 2,000 years old, but those stones are dark black. That's what they built with in this part of the country. This woman has found herself in a mess. There's no electricity. 
She's dropped one coin, and you'll notice the costs are mounting. How many sheep were, were lost? One sheep out of 100. Now it's one coin out of 10. What's happened here? She's either carrying those coins, in, according to the custom, in a necklace around her neck with a hole punched through each coin for safekeeping, or more likely in a little rag bag that she's tied herself. And ten coins doesn't sound like much, but in the culture of the day, that might be enough to feed her family for about two weeks. And animals wander away. Coins don't. She's lost it. It's her fault. She's put her family, who's already in a hand-to-mouth condition, in a worse situation, and now this tiny little likely corroded coin has fallen into this black stone floor filled with crevices, so what does she do? She gets a lamp, and she searches carefully through every nook and cranny, and no wonder when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, "'Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost.'" And again, Jesus says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. These parables are taught to the gripers. They're taught to the grumblers and the complainers that Jesus loves and accepts the wrong kind of people. And then we come to the story that everybody knows. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. You know the name of this story. It's probably printed on your Bible by the editor. What do we call this final parable? The prodigal son. It's interesting that the editors have ignored that there are two sons. They both matter. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And it's so easy to read that and miss the insult. This young boy is entitled in the culture of the time to one-third of the family estate. This man, as you're going to see, evidently has done well because he has servants. Probably over centuries, this family has succeeded. They have brought wealth to the overall community, and they themselves enjoy a comfortable life. And one day, the younger son comes to the father and says, I'm entitled to one-third, I want it now. And it's easy to miss the insult because what he's telling his dad is, I wish you were dead. Dad, you're not dying fast enough. I know a third of this is already mine by law. Give it to me now. Did you say that to your parent? You imagine a younger, because it's hard in this community to ever get started in owning a house. You imagine 25, 26-year-old son saying, Mom, Dad, you bought this place when it was $40,000. It's just me and my brother. How about you just give it to us now? Because you're not in the greatest of health, and we all know how this is going to go probably. We've read the actuarial tables. It's probably going to be ours. Could we have it now? What would that do to your family? It'd blow it apart. This boy's being cruel. He's being heartless. 
And the father's going to surprise everyone in the community and both of his sons again and again. Here's the first time. It says, he divided his property, don't miss it, he divided his property between, what's it say? Them. The father humbly accepts this insult, and rather than punish this insolent little punk, he actually does it. And he shares his wealth not only with the younger son, but with both boys. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. The Greek is really instructive. It basically means he left his own, he left his own people. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. See, the rebel at least was honest. He said to his father, I wish you were dead, and then he acted like it. Because all that wealth that had taken so long to accumulate it, he liquidated it. He impoverished his family and the rest of the community by selling everything off. He got cash in his pockets. He left his family and, apparently in a short amount of time, because if you're reckless, you can lose it quickly. He blew it all, Jesus says, delicately in reckless living. And what he has told his family is... I wish you were dead, and I am willing for the rest of my life to act as if you already were. You see, in Western society in the 21st century, we've created so many different safety nets. Our families are so small by comparison and so blown apart. We move from side to side to the country. We move from one country to another. Our families don't hang together. We're not knit together for life. In first century Israel, they were. This is shocking, utterly inappropriate, and the boy has decided, I don't need insurance. I don't need care in my old age. I need none of the protection and none of the loyalties that this family and that my roots would give me. I don't want any of it. I just want the cash. I just want to do what I want. In the culture of this time, even if you had never visited your ancestral village, when you were asked where you were from, you would name the town, the city, the village where your people were from. And even if they had never met you, if you identified your, yourself as the son or the daughter of someone from the village, all the doors open because these are your people and this rebel wants none of it. And then, as it usually happens, something went wrong. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And isn't that just always the way? You've been so careful, and finally you decided you've suffered long enough, and you deserve the fancy thing that you want, and you buy it, and the very next day the transmission goes out, or the roof starts leaking, or the kid discovers that his teeth are crooked, and now he needs braces, and you're really in the soup. And that's what's happened to the rubble, except it's famine. We've all seen the horrifying pictures from other continents of people who are starving to death. Their bodies are misshapen because of starvation. In the first century, that could happen very quickly. Most people lived hand to mouth. Most people were paid day by day and needed the pay of that day's wages to get through the very next day. In this time, if something went disastrously wrong with politics or the weather, hunger came quickly. 
And now the boy is regretting that he spent so lavishly on so many foolish things, and he does something humiliating for a nice Jewish kid. He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to do what now? Feed pigs. He hired himself out to a Gentile, a well-to-do son of the manor from a Jewish home, is now, out of simple desperation, feeding animals he's been taught to despise. And it's worse than that. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Those are probably the pods from the carob tree. They're indigestible to human beings. The pigs can eat them and live off them. Human beings can't. And the worst part, the cruelest part in the story perhaps, is at the end of verse 16. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Every culture has a way of enforcing its norms. Maybe you had a cultural anthropology class that taught you that at some fancy college, but you've all lived it even if you hadn't heard that term before. Let me give you a simple explanation that you've experienced. Have you ever gone to a movie and the lights are out, the movie's going, and someone somewhere won't stop talking? Ever had that experience? He's breaking a social norm because the norm is once the movie gets started, you put your phone away and you shut up. Because none of us are paying money to hear you talk and gripe about your boss. We're all here to watch this Death Star blow up or whatever movie you happen to come in to see. How are those norms enforced with the talker? What do people begin to do? Okay, you guys are pretty serious because that's true, but usually you give them the courtesy of a half turn. You just let them see the side of your head, right? You don't want to embarrass them with the full turn. If they don't respond and go, sorry, or just shut up, then you might give them the full turn, and there's an awkward moment, and then come, you guys are actually pretty hardcore, then comes the shushing, and what if they still keep talking? Have you ever had that experience? Someone somewhere may shout in the darkness, hey, shut up, here to watch a movie. And then, by the social norm, that's it. They have to shut up, or the next thing that happens is people lay hands on people, and it becomes violent. I saw it happen once at a movie theater. They told us never to go to that movie theater in Pomona, but there we were, and that's why they told us not to go there. In the social norms of Israel, this boy's getting exactly what he deserves. They know who he is. They know where he's come from. They know what shameful things he must have done to be feeding these pigs. And people are enforcing righteousness by refusing to give him anything to live. And in desperation, he makes a decision. When he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, he rehearses, because he knows this is his life on the line. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
I want you to think carefully through what he's doing. He was once a son. What's he doing now with his dad? Try to put this in your own words. This is a good Bible study skill. I always tell people who teach the Bible, ask yourself how you would explain it to an eight-year-old boy. Not an eight-year-old girl because they're much sharper at that age. You want, to, uh, you want to make sure that you can explain it to a boy. What's this kid doing? Is he asking back into the family? What's he want? He just wants work. In the culture of the time, what he's probably actually asking is, Father, will you remove my social shame and allow me to be apprentice to someone in the neighboring village? Because I don't know a trade, but if you'll give me permission to be nearby, I'll learn something and come back and work as one of your servants for the rest of my life. I'll never again consider myself your son. I know I blew that. And he makes the long walk home. He arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And speaking as a dad, reading that as a dad, I think I understand what I'm being told here. His father saw him a long way off and recognized him. There's no way of knowing. It's not the point of the parable, but this seems to be a wealthy family. He may have been gone for a very long time indeed. He may have held on against hunger for as long as he dared. But now he's walking home and reading that as a father, I understand what's happening to the dad because I can pick my boys out of a crowd even if I can't see their face. I've known them literally all their lives. I've watched them grow up. I know how they walk. I know how they move. And even without seeing their face, I can say that one right there, the one that walks like that, that's my boy. And what the father does next is humiliating. Humiliating to himself. It says in verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran. And see, we run toward our kids and run with our kids so much. One of my boys was growing up, we had this little routine when he finished a little league game, would race to the snack stand. That's so common that you don't see the shock in that story, but that's because you don't live in first century Israel. You see, in this culture, once a man reaches about the age of 25, his running days are over. He's a man now. Men walk especially important men, especially property owners, especially people who have servants and staff. It's been decades since this man has run. It's shameful to run. Running is what children do. And especially with the clothing of that day, what he would have to do to run, and his legs and hips and knees were unfamiliar. It's been so long, he would have to pick up his robes and either hold them in his hands or even more embarrassingly tie them together and tuck them into his belt and expose his legs and run. And Dr. Bailey, who spent decades in the Middle East, who tells this story with such clarity because culture hasn't changed all that much from the tribes of that day to the tribes who still live there. When he comes to this part of the story, the villagers he's teaching are the most shocked. This is shameful, and here's why the father's doing it. He's doing it to spare his son. You see, the boy knows and the father knows that because of the son's shameful behavior, he has subjected himself to a cutting-off ceremony. 
called a kazaza in Hebrew. And what should have happened to that young man is, as soon as the little boys in the village saw him entering the land that he once said he no longer wanted anything to do with, as soon as he was in the clannish land where people, I, he said, as far as I'm concerned, you're all dead to me, the little boys in the village would start following him and taunting him. That's how they enforce cultural norms. That's how they taught people not to dishonor their parents in this way. It would sound like this. What are you doing here? Loser. Thought you were dead. We all wish you were. You smell like pigs, son. What happened? Things didn't work out with that other town? We heard you were going around with a beautiful woman. Where's she now? And the taunts all the way home when he would sit at the edge of the family property in the dirt and wait. And if the father had any self-respect, he would come out and say, you made your choice. Be gone. Or he might welcome him back under the most severe conditions. Maybe he accepts this bargain, but listen instead to what happens. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's all the father needed to hear. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Who do you suppose that robe belonged to? Who would get the best robe in this house? The father would. And put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And again, things that are so familiar to us, but the ring would have been a signet ring. In other words, it's something that this boy is now authorized to do family business with. He's using, going to use the seal in the future to the ring in the future to seal things representing the family. Shoes means that he's not going to be a servant. Because you could walk onto a property in the ancient world and know who the kids were and who the servants were, depending on one simple thing, who's wearing shoes. The family gets shoes, the servants do not. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead. By his choice, he was dead. And he is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. And it's such a beautiful story, and that's the end of it. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son who has come back in repentance and discovered that his father is filled with love. That's the end of the story, right? Well, there's still a few more verses. And even Christian Bible teachers sometimes break the story off right there and invite the rebels who know they're not right with God, to come back. But that's not where Jesus ended the story. There were two sons, remember? Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Because they haven't had music and dancing in that house for years. The father lost a son, and life and business goes on, but there hasn't been much cause for celebration. 
The servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And here we're running into another cultural norm that will be familiar to us as long, as much time as has passed. When you have somebody over to your house, the kids don't like it because the house has even more grown-ups than usual. And the kids usually ask if they can sit at a different table or if they can be excused rather quickly. But what would it be like if you have some grown-ups over, maybe some people from work, you've started to make some good relationships at work, so you've actually had the house cleaned professionally, you've gone to Costco and you bought stuff that you never buy for yourself, but this is maybe the boss coming over, and you're going to have really just try to be a great family for one night. We can pull that off, right? One night where we can be amazing. What would it be like if your 13 and 15-year-old kids refused to come out and say hello? Would that be okay? No. You got to drag the kids out. They've got to say hello and as quickly and as socially permissible to say, may we be excused? And yes, you may be excused. And the kids fairly race back, slam the door and all is well. Something shameful is happening to the father, not for the first, but for the second time. He doesn't join the party. He doesn't walk in happily asking himself what this is about. No, this man says to a servant, what's going on? That's some of my money being spent on this, isn't it? What happened? Oh, your brother's back, he's alive. And then this terrible news from the older brother's perspective, your father has brought him back, has found him safe and sound. In other words, your father is acting as if nothing happened. Your father is acting as if all is forgiven. He has received him back safe and sound, but he was angry and refused to go in. And the father, having been humiliated, the first time when his younger son, Dad, I wish you were dead. And a second time when to spare his boy the social shame, he exposed his legs, tucked his robes into his belt, and ran like a child to kiss this literally smelly young man to let him know that his father would forgive him. He humiliates himself again by coming out, my Bible says, entreated. What other words do you have there? He pleaded with them. And it's a little quieter in the house now because the guests are saying, I can't believe he's acting like this. I can't believe we're at this party. I can't believe he's given all that he has left back to the younger son. I can't believe the older boy is outside refusing to come in. And now our host is going out to plead with him. But he answered his father and in what follows... He reveals his heart. Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Stop right there. Do you believe him? No, there's none righteous, not one, the Bible says. This older son is the Pharisees and the scribes. He's not truly righteous, he's self-righteous and he shows it. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with who? With my friends. Why his friends? 
His family's not invited. And he said to him, I'm sorry, verse 30, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, first time prostitutes are mentioned in the story. Why did he bring them up? He wants to hurt his father. His father has been awake many nights wondering what's going on, wondering if the boy who said that he wished dad were dead is actually dead himself. Now his older son, under the sound of the music, says, my brother's a whoremonger, dad. He impoverished our family and wasted your money and wasted my money by spending it with prostitutes, and this is what you do? You kill the fattened calf for him? Listen to the plea. Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And that's true. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Happy ending? We don't know. You see, the bigger story, the most intense story, ends on a cliffhanger. It's been getting worse and worse. There was a lost sheep, 1%. There was a lost coin, 10%. There was a lost son, and we would never say 50% because it's a son. And no matter how many you have, you always want to have your children. You never content yourself with the loss of a child saying to yourself that you have more. Your heart always aches for the one who is gone. And the story ends right there because Jesus is talking to both rebels and self-righteous and putting the self-righteous at a crossroads. These tax collectors and these sinners, these notorious people who have come to me and that I welcome at the table and I treat with love, they know they need forgiveness. You apparently don't. And if you keep reading the Gospel of Luke, these who behave as the older brothers are not going to welcome the Father's love. They're actually going to rise up one day and kill Jesus, God's own Son. Why did Jesus tell these stories? To make this simple point. The love of God is extravagant. The forgiveness that the Father gives is extravagant beyond measure. The younger son actually returned to greater conditions than he had when he first disowned his family and sinned against God. God is extravagant with his forgiveness. That's why if you've welcomed it, you need to resist and push away shame and guilt for the rest of your life. Because the Father Himself, acting through the death and life of His Son, Jesus Christ, has taken all that shame and guilt upon Himself. He's paid the price for it so that in return, He can be totally extravagant, reckless, prodigal, generous with His forgiveness toward you. The real question in the story is not whether God will be extravagant to forgive, but who in the story is going to accept that they need His forgiveness. You see, this parable is like a big house and everybody's inside it somewhere. There are those rebels who are willing to admit that they have sinned against God and against other people and are willing to come home confessing as the rebel did 
And there are many more, believe me, many more self-righteous than rebels who say, I'm doing well enough. When I came to Christ, twice, when it was time for me to confess myself a sinner and entrust myself to Jesus for salvation, twice, even as a child, I stopped praying and said, good enough. Nothing to feel sorry for. And I'm glad that God's grace reached me and broke me when it did. Otherwise, I don't know whatever would have happened to me. And you might be in the same position. You're either a rebel who is going to never believe that God could love him this much, or you're a careful rule keeper who doesn't really truly feel the weight of the distance between yourself and the Father. In either case, the invitation is to come in, accept the Father's love, and join the party. The real challenge is, whoever will agree with God that they need Him. Let's pray. Let me talk for just a moment to the possible rebels in the room. Maybe you've been coming to church hoping that there can be forgiveness for you. I hope you've understood there is. And if you haven't trusted Christ, you can do so this morning. You can take that young man's prayer as a model and say, I've sinned against God. I'm sorry, please forgive me. Or maybe more likely in a church service on a Sunday morning, it's much more likely that there are rule keepers here. Some who are thinking that this coming to church is just part of keeping the rules. And you don't disagree that you've done a few things wrong, but not like others. Not so much that you would need to confess yourself a sinner, helpless, unrighteous, kind of person who cannot ever possibly save themselves. That's it. That's all there is. Everybody needs God's forgiveness. It's just that some have been broken and hurt so much that they accept it. And others who are still trying, still doing their best, still hoping that someday they'll be enough. They're the ones at the end of the story that leave us wondering whether the older, older boy ever came inside the house. So I want to give you just a moment, whatever your situation, if you are not entirely sure that you have peace with God, that you'll turn to Him right now. And say, Father, I, I see myself in that story. I too have sinned. I've done wrong. I've been rebellious. Or I've been self-righteous. And I thought I could be good enough for you. Better than others. I'm wrong. I'm sinful. I've sinned. I need your forgiveness. Please forgive me and save me. Make the death and the resurrection of Jesus apply in my case and celebrate over me. Father, whether whatever the mixture is in this crowd and there's always rebels and there's always self-righteous, I pray that you would call anyone who still needs you home and that as you have humbled yourself, we would be humble and accept our need of you, confess our sin, and receive your forgiveness. If anybody does that this morning, please take a moment and fill the card out in your bulletin. Drop it in the box before you leave. 
Father, thank you. We'll close with a, a reminder of this song that we sang that we are to run to the Father, and we should, but we can only do so because the Father first ran toward us. That's how good your grace is. Thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.